0: Hello friends, this is Caleb Suko and you are listening to the Now is the Time podcast. Merry Christmas. Yes, today is January 8th. Yesterday was the 7th and that is Ukrainian Christmas. We got to celebrate it by being at a missions conference at Taylor Creek Church, and I'll be sharing with you the sermon from that in a few minutes, but I also want to give you an update on the soldiers outreach that some of you have been able to help sponsor, and I have put up a few more pictures from that. That all happened this past weekend, really on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, January, 5th, 6th, and 7th. The team was able to go out to the front lines. They were able to distribute MP3 players with uh, scripture on them and some sermons on them and able to connect with a lot of Ukrainian soldiers. In fact, I think I heard reports that they were able to give these MP3 players out to more than a thousand Soldiers. So, if you've been, if you were praying for that, if you donated towards that, thank you so much. And there will be a link in the show notes to this episode, uh, a link that will take you to a page where you can see some photos. Uh, it was uh, there are some pretty interesting photos of uh, what things look like there, the uh, buildings that have had big, you know, they're talking about apartment buildings with. Big holes, gapping holes in the side of them from mortars that have hit those apartment buildings, but also just some of the soldiers that were able to receive those MP3 players because of this outreach. So thank you, thank you so much for your prayers and support for that outreach and continue to pray for those soldiers as they listen to what is on those MP3 players. Now, for this episode, as I said. I want to share with you my sermon from yesterday where we were at Taylor Creek Church for their missions conference. And boy, do we appreciate this church. They have always had such a strong biblical foundation and emphasis in their missions Uh, in their missions conferences and in their support of their missionaries. Also a very communicative, I can't say it, very communicating church. And uh, we appreciate so much them communicating with us while we are on the field. But the sermon that I preached was sort of took off from some of Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions and focused on those resolutions about four of them, that had to do with suffering. And the text is from James chapter 1, the first few verses there. So I hope that this sermon is a blessing to you. I want to remind you that uh, this is on iTunes and Stitcher and anywhere that you can uh, get a podcast. And if you want to leave a review there or uh, give it a rating, that does help it get out in front of other People. Also, on our website, sukofamily.org, you can find the video and also the sermon notes, as well as, like I said, a link to a page on our website that includes some pictures of these soldiers, of the outreach that we. Uh, did this past weekend. So, all right, friends, uh, that is it for the little update. So let's get into this sermon called Resolved to Learn from Suffering. Resolved to Learn from Suffering. James 1, 2 through 2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Please let those words sink in as you read them from the pages of Scripture, as they go into your mind and you contemplate their application to your life and your current situation. Don't allow them to go down too easily. Too often we read Scripture and we just take it in too easily. These are not easy words. This is not angel food cake and frosting. It's fiber and it's grit and it's tough. And it's the kind of stuff that when you swallow it, you can feel it going all the way down. It lets you know that it's there. So grab a glass of water next to your Bible. You might need it to wash some of these truths down today. You know, I'm glad that James wrote these words and not me. Because if I had written these words, I probably would have written, Count it all joy, my brothers, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Now wouldn't that be a good sermon? It would be partly true, but it would be lacking and it would be unscriptural. Sadly, that's exactly what is preached in many churches today. And that's exactly what is believed by many Christians and many of us, even though we would never confess to that type of abridged theology. We have it in the back of our minds and we practically live our lives as if that abridged section of scripture that I read was true. And many of us, We spend our lives running from suffering, trying to avoid it, looking for ways to get rid of it. Just think about it. There are entire industries that exist just so that people can alleviate suffering in their lives. Billions of dollars are made by trying to somehow eradicate suffering. Books are written and they fill many shells with it. Products are sold, sermons are preached, pills are prescribed, counseling is given, escape mechanisms are sought for, all with the purpose of avoiding something that is really unavoidable in this life. And so it kind of makes you think, maybe there's a different approach. But so few face suffering head-on as James gives us the instructions here. So few have learned to embrace suffering with joy and see Jesus in it and beyond it. And the longer I live, the more and the more I study God's Word, I am convinced that one of the greatest weaknesses of a relatively prosperous church, of mainly the Western church, is a lack of clear biblical theology and practice in regards to pain and suffering. And too many have come into the church believing unbiblical promises about the Christian life. They've been lured into the church, if that were possible, with dreams of success and health and an easier life. And these promises of prosperity and health are only good for producing one thing weak-willed, shallow-rooted, fragile faith church-goers who are emotionally motivated, pleasure-pursuing, and scripturally starved. So, for a little contrast, let's look at two preachers. One of them, you should know, his name is Jonathan Edwards. And he made a few resolutions, actually, he made 70 of them. And I want to read a few of them for you this morning. And then we'll look more at James and see where some of these resolutions came from. Res- resolution never- number nine, resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Well, wow, that's a positive one, right? How do you want start the new year with that one? You might die this year. Think about it. Number 10, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and hell. Number 57, resolved when I fear misfortunes and adversities to examine whether I have done my duty and resolve to do it and let it be just as providence orders it. I will, as far as I can, be concerned about nothing but my duty and my sin. In other words, he's saying, when when problems come, I'm going to be concerned with doing the right thing and making sure I'm not falling into sin. And the last one I want to read, number 67. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. That really kind of sums up, I think, Some of what James is telling us here in the beginning of his book as he opens with this idea of facing suffering with joy. But I want to contrast that, like I said, with another popular preacher today. I won't name his name, but it's Creflo Dollar. Um, He says, this are his declarations for the new year, by the way. I declare that God's favor promotes and causes me to increase daily. The Lord takes pleasure in my total life prosperity. Because I am God's favorite, in quotes, I prosper in every area of my life, spiritually, physically, financially, socially, and mentally. Because the favor of God shields me, no sickness or disease has a right to live in my body. Wealth and riches are in my house because I am empowered with His anointing and favor to draw wealth. Do you see a difference? I hope that laugh means yes. These are two competing worldviews that are in the church today. And they are competing with the idea of the role of, of suffering and prosperity in the life of the believer. And what I can tell you is that without a strong biblical foundation, the prosperity gospel will win out most of the time. Because honestly, I don't want to admit that I'm going to face suffering. I would really rather not preach to you that you will face suffering. But more than that, I despise the unbiblical deception of those who would preach the prosperity of others for their own profit. Too many in the church have been swallowed up by these incredulous preachers of a gluttonous gospel. It's a gospel that promises instant gratification, but it gives you little grace. It's a gospel that entertains but fails to edify. It is a gospel that can show you tips and tricks, but it never really teaches you to go through trials. It is a gospel that elevates temporary pleasures and robs you of eternal joy. But it's not a new gospel. It was preached. It's always been preached. Micah 2.11, I love this verse. If a man should go about in utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and beer, he would be the preacher for these people. You know, prosperity gospel preachers exist because people want to hear them. People want to hear them because people do not have a biblical mindset and worldview when it comes to pain, suffering, and God's sovereignty. So let's go back to James. I'm going to read this again because it's so important for us to understand the words that are written here in Scripture. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James opens his letter like a Ironsmith with a hammer. This is not a regular opening for a letter, is it? Talking about the fact that you're going to face suffering, and he brings that hammer down square upon our hard hearts and our misguided expectations and our foolish worldviews. And I think that on one hand, this striking of the hammer would unsettle the original readers. Maybe they were hoping for a different kind of introduction from James in his letter, but on the other hand, it comforts them. Because we know that they were already facing suffering, and now all of a sudden, they are aligning what is happening in their life with biblical truth and understanding. And that is always comforting. In fact, if we simply go back to James 1:1, we see, we see the, a little bit of the context here. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. There's really no fluff here as James opens up his letter, but he addresses it to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, the, the diaspora. Why were they scattered? Well, we know from Acts 8.1 that there was persecution by Paul, and they, they left, except for the apostles. Many, many of the believers, they left because of the persecution in Jerusalem. Now, we, we need to think a little bit about the mindset of these early believers. There had been a lot that went on between Jesus' crucifixion and now this, this dispersion to, to different countries between the end of the Gospels and Acts chapter 8. So these people, they they had seen Jesus rise to popularity. There had been great hope that when he came into Jerusalem that he was going to become the king and, and, and take out the Roman authorities who were there. And then suddenly he was put to death. What a downer, right? But then he rises from the dead. Wow, this is all great again. He rises from the dead, and remember, in Acts chapter 1, one of the first questions he gets asked is, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom? So they're still looking for that restoration of the kingdom, aren't they? Like, right here, right now, we want it, instantaneously. Will you restore the kingdom right now? Well, It's not for us to know the times, is it? And so, they see Jesus, he had conquered death, they're with him, And then He ascends. But He ascends with a promise. He's going to come back again. And of course, if you are a believer at that time, you are thinking and correctly thinking to Old Testament prophecies of the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord. You're thinking, great, you know, I'm just going to sit here and wait because He's going to be coming from heaven down with judgment any minute now. But that didn't happen. And so they go back to Jerusalem. But then they get to Jerusalem. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down. Miracles. Speaking in tongues. Lots of people getting saved. I mean, things are happening now. So just think for what, what, these believers, they're thinking, okay, things are beginning to ramp up again. God is preparing for Jesus' return to take the kingdom back. We're here in Jerusalem. We're seeing all these miracles. All of these people are repenting and getting saved. Something's going to happen right now. And then something does happen. Persecution. And once again, like, wait a minute. What's going on here? I thought that it was all going to come together now. I thought that the kingdom was going to be here. I thought Jesus was coming back. I I thought that that this was going to be it. And now all of a sudden I'm running away from Jerusalem, God's city, to live in some some pagan country. And so you can imagine there were a lot of questions in the believers' minds at at this time as they, they thought about what is going on and the suffering that they are facing and so James, as, as he writes really one of the first epistles to the early church, he has to conquer this wrong prosperity-type thinking. And he does it really with a, with a one-two punch. I don't have time to go into it, but if you look into the book of James, it is just amazing how he just takes down the prosperity gospel. He does it here with suffering. Then he talks about rich people and how they're really nothing special in the church. And he says, hey, you better be careful if you want to get rich. Don't think that that you can just go out and do it. You need to trust in God. You need to do God's will. And he even talks about healing. By the way, some of you might get sick. There's no promises you're not going to get sick. If you do, you better pray. James is a wonderful book when we think about the prosperity gospel. So let's look for a couple of minutes more closely at this text here, and especially as we begin verse 2, he uses this word count. Count it all joy. The word in other contexts is sometimes translated to lead, to govern, even to have authority. And, In this context, so it's it's not just regular, you know, think think about this, but it, it is really I think here implying a a conscious effort to direct your thoughts about a certain topic. We have to do that, especially when it comes to suffering. We have to make a conscious effort to direct our thoughts in a scriptural way if we don't we're fallen humans and our minds will quickly go the wrong way and so he says he says count what do you think about suffering right now i think it's so important that we do this when we are not suffering that much i mean last night i pastor j said we had a family get together i was having a root beer float and trying to write this message. Oh, man, I'm not suffering very much. So then I grabbed some jalapeno chips. Well, it's a little spicy, but I wouldn't classify that as suffering. But I was thinking about it. I was meditating on it. And praise God for the good times in life. We need to have a theology of suffering that does not demand suffering. We need to have a theology of suffering that understands there are good times in life and we need to enjoy them and bless God for them. We need to have a theology of suffering that understands there are good times in life but those two are temporary. And I think it's so important that in those good times in life that we sit down with God's Word And we figure this stuff out. Because by the time you get into suffering, it is going to be ten times harder to think. When you are in the midst of it, it is going to be harder to see beyond it. When you are in the midst of it, it is going to be harder to sit down and just logically figure some of this stuff out from God's Word. So count it right now. Think about it right now. Solomon, Ecclesiastes says, better to be in the house of mourning, right? Think about these things. You could face suffering very soon. I hope not, but you could. How will you react? How will you think about it in light of eternity, in light of Christ, in light of your own self, in light of your family, in light of your job? What will your attitude be? Is it something that you try to avoid at all costs? Is it something you think, well, it really shouldn't happen to you? We need to correct these wrong thinkings about suffering. And James gives us the correction here. He wants us to have all joy. All joy. And, you know, I want to say that very carefully because I don't want to belittle anyone's suffering suffering is is in this world there are millions of my brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered terribly more than I can ever imagine unspeakable suffering and so I think that I want to be careful when when I say these words it just oh you know yeah you're going through a hard time well you should you should you should have joy It's easy to say. It's a lot harder to do when you see that your child is dying or your spouse is dying or any other kind of suffering. So I want to be careful about that. But yet at the same time, as we look at these scriptures... I think that I can say by my limited experience in suffering, and more importantly, by my faith in God's Word, that the Christian is the only person on the face of this planet who can have all joy in all suffering. God does not limit this. We are so tempted to put limits on our joy, to put limits on our satisfaction. To put limits on, on, I will feel good when I achieve this, or when I have this in my life, or if, I could, if just my spouse would act like this, I would, I would have joy, but right now I can't. Or if I could just get rid of this health problem, I would have joy, but right now I can't. We we want to put limitations on this. and I think that partly we put limitations on this all-joy aspect because we don't understand what real biblical joy is. And partly because we don't trust that God is able, that He is powerful enough to actually give us that joy in those sufferings. And... I think partly because we still live under the deception that biblical joy is dependent upon our physical, temporal, health, or financial circumstances. But it's not. John Piper describes Christian joy this way. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word And in the world. And friends, you can see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world, no matter how difficult your circumstance. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that when your circumstances become more difficult, you often will see Christ more clearly. If you have a good biblical understanding of, of who he is. I remember 15 well 13 years ago when we were preparing to go to Ukraine and we got the news that our son had cancer, 1 year old. And I remember very clearly being at the hospital at that time and the social worker came and you know she said, "Oh, you must feel like you just got ran over by a, a truck or something. We, we know how, how devastating this can be. And, and we kind of looked and said, Well, you know, we're actually doing okay. Yeah, it's difficult, but we're doing okay. And I, I remember even, even later on when we, he was getting worse and worse and worse, and we came to the point where we're like, Man, we're, we're, we might lose him. And it drove us to Scripture, and it drove us to, to many of the Psalms. And there was a pain there. We can't lie and say that there wasn't. But I can say that there was also, it's almost unexplainable, there was a joy. A very deep and abiding joy. And even as Christina and I, we, we came together and we prayed and we said, God, you gave us this son and you have the right to take him. We don't want you to, but, but you have the right to. And, and we can say that with a certain amount of peace in our heart and even a certain amount of joy in our heart because we know that you are a good God. And that's Christian joy. So, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, find joy in your suffering. Find joy in the presence of God. Find joy in the truth of His Word. Find joy in the fellowship of believers. Find joy in praise and song. Find joy in knowing that your faith is directed toward an almighty, unchanging, ever-loving God. Find joy in believing that God will use your suffering for His glory. These are truths that don't change, that are not dependent upon your temporary circumstances today. And you can find joy in them. Peter also talks about this. Let's look at that for a minute. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or what about Hebrews 12:2? looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had this mindset. He endured the cross because of the joy set before Him. He endured it for you, and we can find joy in knowing that we have a Savior who had joy in suffering. Also 1st Peter 4:13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Isn't that amazing how often scripture puts joy next to suffering? Our world doesn't know how to do that. It's a mystery to them. Look with me for a minute at verse 3 here. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance or patience. And I just want to think about that for a minute. For you know. We, I think that we as, I know that probably many of you have been going to church for years, you know a lot of stuff about the Bible. But we need reminders. We need reminders. And it's so important that, G- that James gets our attention back to, think about what you know. And this is such a, a vital thing that we do, should do in suffering because generally speaking, the first thing that someone does in suffering is they go to what they don't know. God, why is this happening to me? Why did this happen? I don't get it. I don't know why this is happening. And we go to what we don't know. And James, no. You know this. Go to what you know in suffering. Go to God's word in suffering. Remind yourself of the goodness of God, of his patience, of his grace, of his mercy, of the suffering that Jesus went through, of the hope of eternal glory. You know this stuff. You need to be reminded of this stuff we know that testing is good for us, right? We don't want it, but it's good for us. Abraham was tested, and he is the epitome of faith throughout Scripture. He is the father of faith. So if you're being tested right now, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it'll give you faith like Abraham. You know, but we need to understand what God's tests really are. God's tests are meant not to prove our abilities, but to prove his abilities. Do you you see the difference? When we take a test in school, when you take a driver's test, it is all about your ability. How are you going to do this? Do you have the skill to do it? Do you have the knowledge to do it? Do you have the ability to get this done? But when God tests us, it's all about Him proving to us His ability. But He just wants us to have faith in His ability. That's what a biblical test is about. You know without testing our faith is really unlikely to grow i hate to say it but but without that strain without pulling us out of our comfort zone where we think everything is safe and secure and good and we have insurance on our house and on our car and on our life and on our health and I don't know on our marriage whatever you can buy insurance for nowadays and we think it's all good and I've taken care of all of it where's the faith in that Our faith grows when we're pulled out of our comfort zone and put into a place we have to say God I I can't do this anymore on my own He says that's right That's what I wanted you to understand And James says that steadfastness is vital in this. Endurance. It really means to to, to remain under, literally. To stay in place. To be unmoved. If you want to know the character of someone, put them in trials. Put them in suffering. You will find their character. And I think that as we think of going through Trials. We need to understand this idea of not being moved. The world may move around us. The mountains may fall. The the, the seas may go away. But if we have the correct foundation underneath us, we will not be moved. What is the unmovable? It's the truth of God's Word. It is faith in an unchanging God. That's where steadfastness comes from not in your inner willpower. That's as weak as it gets. Just stop it. You need God's Word. You need to understand who God is. That is where we find the unmovable, unshakable faith that we need because it is directed towards an unmovable and unshakable God. And... Notice what he says then in verse 4 here. He says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now here's here's the problem, quite simply, that I have noticed in my life is that I'm fine to suffer for a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm done. Think I learned my lesson. Can I get out now? James said, hey, don't hurry. Be patient. Let it have its full effect. Let it strengthen your faith completely until there is nothing left of trusting in your own self or in someone else or in something else. And you are perfectly and completely resting in the arms of Jesus. That is the intended purpose of these things. And it's so good for us to understand that before we go into them. So that we're not caught off guard and think, why did this happen to me? It shouldn't happen to me. I'm doing everything right. And God's like, yeah, but you're not trusting in me. So, the more trials and suffering that you go through while looking to Jesus, the greater opportunity for spiritual growth. So many people, they want to grow spiritually. And there's so many people out there that are willing to give you these tips and tricks and steps and keys and secrets and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, hey, you grow spiritually, you got to do this, this, that, and the other thing. Like, well, you know, besides God's Word, applying it to our lives, trusting Him and the hard stuff, you're not going to grow. It's just not. We need this to grow. And as I close, I want to just share with you quickly some of the things from Scripture that suffering teaches us. Suffering teaches us to wait eagerly for glory, Romans 8.18. Suffering teaches us to pray, Romans eight twenty six. Suffering teaches us to hang tightly to God's love, Romans 8, 35. Suffering helps us to comfort others, 2 Corinthians 1, 7. Suffering teaches us to acknowledge the reality of our own weaknesses, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Suffering teaches us to boast in Jesus alone, 2 Corinthians 11.30. Su- suffering teaches us to become like Christ, Philippians 3.10. Suffering teaches us to declare the gospel boldly, 1 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. Suffering teaches us not to be ashamed of the gospel, 2 Timothy 1.12. Suffering teaches us to cease from sin, 1 Peter 4.1. Suffering teaches us to rejoice, 1 Peter 4.13. And finally, suffering teaches us to glorify God, 1 Peter 4.16. Let me say a quick prayer as I close.